Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Welcome back. Today we are going to begin reading the book of Mosiah. This is different from the other books that we've been reading up until this point because it was written by a prophet named Mormon who was born around 310 AD. We're going to have a whole episode dedicated to Mormon at some point, but that probably won't happen for a while. Also, we need to get the answer for our trivia question from last time. By the way, should I keep doing trivia questions? If you have strong feelings one way or another, let me know in the comments. We ended last time by asking, what were the names of Mosiah's two brothers? We find the answer to this in Mosiah chapter 1, verse 2. So, speaking of King Benjamin, Mormon tells us this. And it came to pass that he had three sons, and he called their names Mosiah and Heloram and Helaman. And he caused that they should be taught in all the language of his fathers, that thereby they might become men of understanding, and so on. So Mosiah's brothers were named Holoram and Helaman. Mosiah is made king in the book of Mosiah is about the time of his reign. And Holoram and Helaman are never mentioned again. Although a couple generations later we'll have a, a different Helaman. The opening scene of Mosiah 1 shows King Benjamin and Zarahemla talking to his three sons, Mosiah, Helorim, and Helaman, who we just met. As a quick background or recap, King Benjamin's father, who is named Mosiah, I'll call him Mosiah Sr., Mosiah Sr. lived in the land of Nephi. God warned him to take his people and flee. They abandoned the land of Nephi and fled north. From information gathered later on, Mosiah Sr.'s group traveled about three weeks north and stumbled into another group of people who had also left Jerusalem about 500 years earlier, who were led by a man named Zarahemla. The language of the people of Zarahemla had changed, and the two groups couldn't talk to each other. Also, the people of Zarahemla didn't have a written language, so Mosiah Sr. taught the people how to write and to speak in the language of the Nephites. The two groups joined, and Mosiah Sr. was made the king. Mosiah died and was succeeded by his son, Benjamin. During Benjamin's reign, there was a war between the Lamanites and the people living in Zarahemla, and Benjamin led the people in driving them out. For the next couple hundred years, Zarahemla will be the capital city of the Nephites until just before the Savior's visit when it gets destroyed by fire. But that's where the book of Mosiah begins. King Benjamin was living with his sons in the land of Zarahemla, Going back to Mosiah chapter 1, verse 2, we learn how Benjamin had educated his sons. And he caused that they should be taught in all the language of his fathers, that thereby they might become men of understanding, and that they might know concerning the prophecies which had been spoken by the mouths of their fathers, which were delivered them by the hand of the Lord. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that teaching them the language of their fathers meant that Benjamin taught his sons the written language of the Egyptians so they could read the brass plates, that Nephi took from Laban and brought to his father. Here's verse 4. For it were not possible that our father Lehi could have remembered all these things to have taught them to his children, except it were for the help of these plates. 
for he, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings and teach them to his children, that thereby they could teach them to their children, and so fulfilling the commandments of God, even down to this present time. Being able to read and write had allowed Benjamin's people to remember their God and their religion. By contrast, when Mosiah Sr. met the people of Zarahemla, Amni 1.17 tells us that, quote, they denied the being of their creator. And Mosiah 1 verse 5 explains that the Lamanites knew nothing of the mysteries and commandments of God. King Benjamin united these two groups of people, the Nephites and Zarahemla's people, into one group. But now he was growing old and needed to present Mosiah as the next king. He asked Mosiah to call all the people together, including both the people of Zarahemla and Mosiah's people. They were to gather, quote, on the morrow. And Benjamin would not only present Mosiah as king, but he would give the people a new name. Here's verse 11. And moreover, I shall give this people a name that thereby they may be distinguished above all the people which the Lord God hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I do because they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. It's important to remember that these people diligently kept the commandments because in just a few chapters, we'll find that these same people feel so unworthy that they fall to the ground. Benjamin told his sons that God had preserved the Nephites because of their righteousness. However, if they should fall into wickedness and adultery, his protection would cease and they would fall victim to the hatred of their enemies. Although not stated explicitly in this instance, we can probably assume that his warning applies to everyone who lives in the promised land. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure why specific blessings and promises seem to apply to some geographic areas more than they do to others, but that seems to be a repeated theme in the Book of Mormon. Also, I'm not sure how many people need to remain righteous to retain the promised blessings. For example, in Genesis 18, Abraham asked the Lord to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous people, and the Lord agreed. But also at the same time, righteousness is not guaranteed to avoid death and calamity. However, in D&C 42, we read, in verses 46 and 47, And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And they that die not in me won't of them, for their death is bitter. Thinking of the prophet Abinadi being burned alive, this promise can't be a guarantee that someone's physical death won't be prolonged or painful. Maybe it just means that they'll be unworried and at peace. I'm not sure. If you've got thoughts on that, feel free to leave comments and, and let me know what you think. At the end of chapter 1, King Benjamin gave Mosiah a charge concerning all the affairs of the kingdom. Verse 16, And moreover, he also gave him charge concerning the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, and also the plates of Nephi, and also the sword of Laban, and the Baal or director, which led our fathers through the wilderness, which was prepared by the hand of the Lord, that thereby they might be led, every one according to the heed and diligence which they gave unto him. So King Benjamin gave his son the brass plates, the plates of Nephi, the sword of Laban, and the Leahona. Mosiah then departed to gather all the people living in Zarahemla and bring them to the temple. Now we move to Mosiah chapter 2. Mosiah sent a proclamation for the people to gather so the king could speak to them for the last time. Their numbers had, quote, multiplied exceedingly, and a countless throng of people began assembling, and they brought animals with them for sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, they don't say this explicitly, but when I hear of sacrifices and burnt offerings, I think of a barbecue. 
Yes, they were a religious thing, but so were weddings. And when the book of Leviticus talks about making sacrifices, it frequently mentions, quote, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Also, most of the people probably would have been farmers without a lot of nearby neighbors. So this event probably would have been similar to a modern day county fair. With the smell of cooking meat, you have brightly colored tents and hundreds or maybe close to a thousand people who didn't gather with others very often getting together. If it happened today, there would be things to do for the kids. The teenagers would be off somewhere playing ball. There might be a dance in the evening. My point is, this would have been a big event, and although they were meeting to hear the king's message, it probably would have been a good time. Verse 5, And it came to pass that when they came up to the temple, they pitched their tents round about, every man according to his family, consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters and their sons and their daughters, from the eldest down to the youngest, every family being separate one from another. Verse 5 implies that the gathering of the families might have been members of the extended family, all gathered together with parents, children, grandkids, cousins, all in the same area. And then it came time for the king's message. All these happy people who had hopefully had something to eat uh, had to end their conversations that they were having for the first time in a long time with their neighbors. They probably promised to catch up. We need to do this type of thing more often. Parents called their kids to the tents and they probably let the cousins sit together so they'd be happier. And then they sat and got ready to listen to King Benjamin. Obviously, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. There were too many people for them to fit in the temple itself. And that indicates roughly how many people we're talking about. How many people could you fit in the temple? That's kind of what they expected, but it sounds like they had to overflow from that. So maybe temple capacity times two or something. Not an enormous group of people, but a big group. Here's verse 7. For the multitude being so great that King Benjamin could not teach them all within the walls of the temple, wherefore... He caused a tower to be erected, that thereby his people might hear the words which he should speak unto them. And it came to pass that he began to speak to his people from the tower, and they could not all hear his words because of the greatness of the multitude. Therefore he caused that the words which he spake should be written and sent forth among those that were not under the sound of his voice, that they might also receive his words. At first I wondered if the phrase sent forth meant that the king sent a written transcript of his discourse to people who weren't able to be there that day. But instead, it seems that his talk was closed captioned, so to speak. Or maybe a few people with loud voices were assigned to repeat the message to those seated further away. It's hard to picture this all being done on the fly because of the time required to make three chapters worth of signs to show the people. But on the other hand, toward the end of his talk, he makes observations about his audience. For example, that they had all fallen to the ground that would have been difficult for him to anticipate and write into his talk. And also, let's not forget that not everyone in the audience was a native speaker of the Nephite language. The people of Zarahemla had only learned the Nephite language one or two generations earlier, and there may have been some of the older members of the congregation who needed a translator. Mormon's records might have included a copy of the text sent forth to the people because verse 9 begins, quote, and these are the words which he spake and caused to be written. King Benjamin began by describing how he had governed his people. If there was ever a case to be made for being ruled by kings, King Benjamin was it. As Mosiah will tell us in Mosiah 29, verse 13, if, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, 
I say unto you, if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings to rule over you. The small plates didn't discuss politics, so we don't know whether the Nephite kings up until this point had been righteous or corrupt. But if King Benjamin was an example of what a king had been like for them, they had truly been blessed people. He taught them to obey the commandments. He, quote, labored with his own hands because he wanted to avoid having to be supported by taxes, and as, as kings usually are, and being a burden to the people. He spent his life in their service. And, and here, in his final address, he revealed that his motive had been to teach his people by his own example to serve one another. Returning to Mosiah 2, here's verses 16 through 18. Behold, I say unto you that because I, I said unto you that I had spent my days in your service, I do not desire to boast, for I have only been in the service of my God. And behold, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Behold, ye have called me your king, and if I, whom ye call your king, do labor to serve you, then ought ye not to labor to serve one another? Benjamin said that if the king deserved thanks for what he had done while serving God, shouldn't they think they're God? But thanking God would not erase their debt to him. In fact, no action could ever settle that score because being righteous would simply result in more blessings, putting them deeper into God's debt. We collectively as mortals are not even as much as the dust of the earth, he said. We are made of dust, and even that dust was made by him, so we can do nothing worthy of boasting. Here's verse 21. I say unto you that if ye should serve him who has created you from the beginning, and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath, that you may live and move and do according to your own will, and even supporting you from one moment to another, I say, if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants. Now, some of us might not like being described as unprofitable servants. While I was thinking about this several years ago, I realized that our uh, human experience in a lot of ways is like an off-site corporate training exercise. I was working in corporate America at the time, and I attended a couple of off-site training or team-building events. The organizers gave us some fake cash and gave us some games to play and explained the rules. Sometimes the point of the game was to try to maximize our money. Sometimes the, the, the point was to maximize the group's earnings. And, but sometimes the goal had nothing to do with the money at all. But when the training ended... We all turned our play money back in and we got on a bus and we went back to our normal lives and our regular jobs. And these training exercises had several unspoken objectives. They included building camaraderie, making friends, developing leadership skills, and understanding new strategies. The accomplishments, cash, accolades, winning the games had no intrinsic value at all. Money won in those simulated scenarios brought no value at all to the company. But some participants ignored learning and relationship building and, and fixated instead on winning the game. And mortality is a lot like that. We leave our heavenly home and come to this distant, muddy little planet where life is short and everything decays. And participants in this test have different starting positions. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. We have different access to resources. And when this exercise ends, we'll leave everything behind and we'll go back, hopefully having made some friends, establish some relationships, and having learned something along the way. So being unprofitable is not an, an insult because 
that's not the point of the exercise. It's not a profit-generating event. The organizers don't expect us to be profitable. That's not why we're here. So King Benjamin's statement that mortals are unprofitable servants was simply a reminder that mortality is just a test. Another objective of King Benjamin's address was to tell his people that they were solely accountable for their actions, that their blood was not on his robes. People under the control of a king might be forced to do things against their will, in which case the fault would lie with the king. But a righteous king's subjects, King Benjamin's subjects, had only themselves to blame for their own actions. King Benjamin announced to the crowd that Mosiah was their new king and that they would follow his commandments going forward. Or, more specifically, they would follow the commandments of God delivered to them by Mosiah. Verse 31, And now, my brethren, I would that ye should do as I have hitherto done, as ye have kept my commandments, and also the commandments of my father, and have prospered, and have been kept from falling into the hands of your enemies. Even so, if ye shall keep the commandments of my son, or the commandments of God, which shall be delivered unto you by him, ye shall prosper in the land, and your enemies shall have no power over you. The chapter ended with Benjamin describing the benefits of righteous living. All but the youngest in the kingdom, he said, were taught the gospel and knew right from wrong. The Nephites' prosperity and physical survival depended on being righteous. Verse 36 discusses the mechanism that makes this possible. And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught all these things, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which hath been spoken, that ye do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed, prospered, and preserved. So as King Benjamin explained, righteousness brings the companionship of the Holy Ghost, which guides us in wisdom's paths. It teaches us how to proceed through life's challenges and how to secure blessings. We may not always have what we want because our natural desires may not always be aligned with what God wants. It may be contrary to his plan. Benjamin concluded his chapter, but not his sermon, with the following statement. Verse 41, And moreover, I would desire that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Next time, we'll continue with King Benjamin's sermon. And now we'll end with a trivia question. The Book of Mormon only mentions four women by name. One of them is mentioned in Mosiah chapter 3. So here's the question. Who are the four women named in the Book of Mormon? We'll see you next time.